0: Good morning, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Isaiah chapter 40, we're going to read from verse 1 through verse 8, Isaiah 40, verse 1 through verse 8. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field, the grass withers, The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father God, you've spoken your word to us and you've given your word by your spirit that you open our ears to hear and that you help us to do and to be what you have promised us that we will do and will be. We thank you for the grace that does this in us. In Jesus' name, amen. This very familiar prophetic passage was written to exiles. We tend to miss that sometimes because we've heard these passages so often in their New Testament context. So when we hear the words at the beginning of of this passage, we tend to see John the Baptist. And sometimes when we hear the word at the end about all flesh is grass, we sometimes hear 1 Peter. And that's good, but in doing that we might miss something that the Old Testament has to show us about covenantal context, about what it is to be in exile. So today, for a few minutes, I'd like you to place yourself back into what it must have been like to have been in exile from Israel to Babylon. It's hard to do because we live now, not then. But try to picture, maybe as a rough picture, what it would be like if somehow us and our civilization were ended and we were exiled to go live in ISIS land. Try to picture it. They're the enemy. They hate you. They destroyed your cities and now you're going to go live there. That's the context that this message comes to people like that. It also has a message to us. We will look at it because we too are exiles. But in order to understand it, we have to realize who it is written to. In our short time this morning, there are two things that I would like to do. First, we will look at this context, this passage in its original context. Second, we're going to look at it in a new covenant context, focusing specifically in the way we approach this on the contrast that's drawn in verses 6 through 8. The contrast between all flesh, on the one hand, and the Word of God, on the other. When we get to the second point, we're going to elaborate it under three sort of perspectives. The first one being the perspective of the contrast between Word and flesh in the original creation. Not so much a contrast as flesh uh, showing what the Word is. The second one being how that's broken. And then the second major point, the first point then is creation and fall. The second major point is new creation. That's the second perspective on this contrast. And the third one is what does this contrast look like in an age of already not yet? What does it look like in this present age? The key idea that I hope you take away this morning as fellow exiles is that although we were exiled for our faithlessness, The faithful word which the Father spoke in Christ through the Spirit gives us faith and it ensures that we will return from exile and that we will faithfully bear his image in the new creation. Let's begin by looking at our passage. What is the message that Isaiah has for this group of exiles? Well it's comfort, comfort my people. These are imperatives, they're in the plural. So in good Kleinian fashion, I think we should interpret these as God speaking in the midst of a heavenly council to which Isaiah has been admitted as a true prophet of God. In the next verse, Isaiah tells us that a voice cries out, presumably in response to this command. And that voice that that cries out says, In the wilderness, speaking like a herald, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And then this great series of every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain shall be made low, terminating with, all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This passage would probably have raised strong echoes to people who had been raised with the Old Testament scripture. They might have heard Psalm 68 and the depiction of God as a warrior in the desert. They certainly would have thought of the Red Sea and Mount Sinai. And they would have almost certainly pictured this great prophecy as prophesying a second exodus. Now, I want to call your attention to a particular phrase there. He says, all flesh shall see it together. That's a significant phrase because in almost every instance in the Old Testament, we don't have time to go through it now, when the word all flesh appears, it tends to have two connotations. One is universality. It tends to refer to all of human life, not just the redeemed or the covenant people, but all. And it also tends to have a connotation of judgment. All flesh is, how, is used pervasively in the Noahic account of the flood. It's also used a lot in the Psalms to refer to the created order. But it certainly has a sense of universality and it also has a sense of judgment. And this brings us to the passage which is the centerpiece of our reflection this morning. Verses 6 through 8. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is as grass. Now, there are two things here. We see the word all flesh again. All flesh is as grass. And we see also that it says, and its beauty is like the flower of the field. It's interesting that when it talks about beauty, the actual word there is the Hebrew word chesed, which Being good Hebrew students, most of you know, that word is everywhere. This is the only place in the scripture where it's translated beauty. And my humble opinion, it's a mistranslation. Because what that word ordinarily means is steadfast love or covenant love. Now, when we read the passage that way, what it says is, all its covenant faithfulness is as the flowers of the field, contrasted with God's eternal faithfulness to do his word. That's the great contrast that's here. That is the reason they went into exile. And a parallel passage where we see the same idea of covenant faithfulness and judgment in God's word in contrast is Hosea 6, verses 4 through 7. I'll read it to you. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them. By the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love, there's the word chesed, and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There, they dealt faithlessly with me. You see the combination of ideas? Faithless. We see the idea of chesed, Adam transgressing the covenant. Going back to Isaiah 40, these ideas are, the same ideas are in view. Now, another thing you'll notice in the Isaiah 40 passage is that is this, this word that's translated when the Lord's breath blows on them. This is another one where I actually think it helps to miss the idea of what's going on here. Because that word, as you probably know, is ruach, the wind. It can, it can mean breath, certainly. But throughout the prophetic literature, that word is very commonly used as a metaphor of judgment. In Jeremiah 4... Verses 11 through 12, God says, at that time it will be said to this people and to Jerusalem, a hot wind from the bare heights in the desert toward the daughter of my people, not to winnow or to cleanse. A wind too full for this comes for me. Now it is I who speak judgment on them. There are many other passages where God's judgment is portrayed as a hot east wind. I can't read them all for you. Isaiah 17, 13, for example, Talks about the nations roar like the roaring of many waters. But he will rebuke them and they will flee far away. Chased like chaff on the mountains before the wind. And whirling dust before the storm. Just one other one. There are many. In Isaiah chapter 27 verse 8. Measure by measure by exile you contended with them. He removed them with his fierce, fierce breath in the day of the east wind. Now what's in picture here is a Middle Eastern phenomenon. The hot east wind, which is, in, you know, in local terms, known as the Sharav, or the Chamsin, and the Chamsin, excuse me, these are hot, blighting winds from the east. They arrive in the spring, and the early summer. They're not at all like the cool, twice daily, diurnal winds of late summer and autumn that are used for winnowing grain and that bring moisture. They're hot and they destroy. This is what is in view. So bringing all these ideas together then, what's, what Isaiah 40, 1 through 8, is portraying, it's portraying a people, all flesh have broken the covenant, Israel in particular has broken its covenant, it has been driven away by the hot east wind into exile, and now, out of God's faithfulness to his covenant promise, in contrast to the faithlessness which drove these people into exile... God is going to restore some. This basic idea is bound up in the name of Isaiah's son. She'ar yeshuv, a remnant will return. This is the great promise that God is being faithful to. I wish we had more time to unpack that passage, but I have to move on to the second major point, which is to apply this to the new covenant. Because there is a deeper meaning, there's a second level of meaning, an ultimate meaning which is uncovered for us in the New Testament. These great promises of a glorious return that all flesh would see, they were fulfilled in a minimal way. And the people in this whole intertestamental period waited and never saw. They were never out from under the boot of the oppressor, they were looking for this great revelation of God's redeeming work, where the glory that would exist would be greater than the former things, but it hadn't come. And it's in this context that we must hear again John the Baptist's testimony, as it's recorded in the Gospels. Because he comes and he identifies himself as the voice crying in the wilderness, announcing, prepare the way, because it's about to happen. This is the context. And what remains of our time today, as I said, we're going to look at three aspects of this new covenant fulfillment. First, we're going to look at it from the perspective of the original creation, this contrast between flesh and word. Then we'll look at it from the perspective of the recreation in Christ, and lastly, in the context of the time between. So first, the created relationship between all flesh and God's word. We use so many words that it's easy for us to get what a, forget what a miraculous thing they are. They, they represent things. literally, they represent them. They make things that aren't present present in your mind. That's an, that's an analogy. That's a, that's a central part of the image that we still bear of God's. because His original, it doesn't just make already existent things present in the mind. His word has weight. It makes things real. Hebrews 1 to 3 says that he created the heavens and the earth by the word of his power. In Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9, we read, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. A little later he says, For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Romans four seventeen says that he calls into existence things that do not exist. And this is what he did with the creation. And then as the pinnacle of his creation, he set over it one who was his own image, that was to be an expression of his word, this creature called man. One might say, and he called it very good, this is God's word of approbation, you might say that before the fall, all flesh and God's word were not in opposition, but that flesh was an expression of his word, which merited God's approbation and his blessing. But we know what happened. God had ordained humankind and he granted it authority to rule over creation, but instead of governing reality according to the word of God, men were deluded by the devil's question: Hath God said? Into envisioning a world contrary to the Word of God, placed their deluded faith in a fictional world that had no intrinsic reality, and rather than serving As the servants of life, they became the servants of death. And in response to this, this, God spoke a word of judgment, effectively saying to the man, so be it. They and their descendants were exiled from the Lord's covenant presence to become inhabitants of a world of dying and death, the kind of world that's appropriate to those who reject the sovereignty of the source of life. I want you to notice this. It's in departure from God's word that their exile and our exile originated. It's in being in opposition to God's word that our exile consists. And it's only in being reconciled to God's word that our exile could end. The result of their choice was a world, in the words of Roman 8, that had been subjected to futility. It became the world, in Kohelet's words, of hevel of pointlessness, of emptiness, a world in which the corruption of non-existence, which Adam and Eve had allowed to enter, it progressively gained ground. It became a world of delusion, of increasing disorder, disintegration, death, decay. It became a world in the process of being disestablished, of winding down, of returning to a state of primeval tohu wa bohu, of waste and void. It is a world which was destined not for God's word of approbation and delight, but for his anger and for his curse. By God's unbreakable word of judgment, Adam and Eve were sent into exile from their good world to a cursed world. So here in the first creation after the fall, we see our first exemplar of the, the passage in Isaiah 40 that we looked at. Mankind is mere flesh. His chesed, or his covenant loyalty, is like grass. And when the breath of the Lord's judgment blows on him, he will blow away. But there was that promise of the coming seed. This brings us to the second point, the second perspective. The recreated relationship between all flesh and the word of God in Christ's incarnation, incarnation resurrection, and in the new creation. It might have seemed at this point in the story as though God's original plan for mankind had been thwarted but God's will can't be thwarted but it is true that in order for human beings to become visible expressions of the word of God it was necessary that the word of God himself had to become a human being and this is the same word by which men received their image in the first place in the beginning was the word and the word was with God And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that has been made. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. He's the one who instead of listening to the devil's question of "Hath God said. Responds with the statement man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The amazing truth is that the image and word of God were given their greatest visible expression in the redeeming love and covenant loyalty shown by Christ. He united flesh to word in his one person. These things that had been ripped asunder, and he bore the justice due to covenant breakers in himself. In terms of the imagery of Isaiah 40, verses 6-8, Jesus is both word, who stands forever, as well as flesh, which is blown away in the hot wind of God's judgment. He's both. In fact, we could even say that the fact that he is God's eternal word is shown because he bears the curse of judgment on Adam's covenant-breaking flesh. That's how he showed what redeeming love looks like. It's a kind of image that Adam, I don't think, could have ever borne. But Christ could. This is something only God Himself could have done. Christ is the preeminent expression of who God is in his redeeming work. And he does this in covenant faithfulness to fulfill the eternal covenant and plan which the triune God made before the world began. He shows that he's the eternal word of God in Adam's flesh. It's in this complete fulfilling of God's word that Jesus incarnates the word of recreation. In fully carrying out that word, Christ fulfilled the eschatological commission to bear God's image. He's now born it fully. And as a result, God says amen, and he becomes the first fruits of the new creation in resurrection and ascension. This brings us to the third perspective, the reforming, I chose that intentionally relationship between flesh and the word of God in this time between the times. We've seen that the new creation began with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and that one of Adam's flesh has now returned from exile. He's home. To be physically joined at the end of the age by many brothers and sisters also who will have returned in the flesh to their home. But does this contrast in Isaiah between all flesh and the word of God have present relevance to you and I? The answer is yes. And this is what takes us to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 23 through 24. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. Through the living and abiding word of God. For, and then he quotes Isaiah, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. In this passage, Peter tells us that we've been born again by this word. By the same living and abiding word that Christ embodied. And that this is the gospel. Jesus tells us about this this word being the seed. Which is thrown in the... You know, it takes root and bears fruit in the lives of those who are to be redeemed by it. How does this work? Well, it works when the Spirit of God causes the word of Christ to dwell in us. So that we're gradually transformed into expressions of that word. By the Holy Spirit. Paul says this clearly in Colossians 3.16 when he tells us to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The psalmist, too, in Psalm 1 talks about how this works. He contrasts the righteous man who's deeply rooted in the word and law of God to the wicked who blows away in the wind. In the verses immediately after, the ones we just read, Peter quotes, Peter talks about how this process of growing up works putting away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This, then, is how, what it looks like in this age of the world. We still have Adam's flesh. It's still there. This is an age in which the flesh... Of Adam must still be constantly battled it's an age where we must constantly put that flesh under the judgment of the Word of God nevertheless because of God's Word and Spirit at work in us we are also progressively subdued and mastered by the Word we remain in that age of warfare but we also partake in the eternal state even now the powers of the ages to come are already present and are presently at work in us But the age to come is also an age to come. The age of complete fulfillment of the eternal word which God gave full expression to in Christ. So, we've now looked at the relation between flesh and word in three different places in redemptive history, this great contrast. And this, I would put to you, is what Isaiah 40 verses one through eight is really speaking to, our return from exile by being reconformed to the image of the word that we were sundered from. Fellow pilgrims and exiles, let me leave you with these words of encouragement this morning. The day is coming when we will be clothed in the glory of Christ, just as we're already clothed in his righteousness. Our glorified flesh will not be grass to be burned, but it will bear an eternal glory The day is coming when our flesh will be an exact expression of the approving word of God. We will not be like the wicked who in their flesh will bear God's eternal no and eternal exile from his presence. But we're going to be those whose flesh embodies God's yes and is amen. Our existence will have real, lasting, eternal solidity that comes from the God whose word makes real. By having become expressions of what God actually said, in contrast to Satan's hath God said, we will gain an eternal reality, a reality over which God says yes and amen. We will be those over whom he delights. Imagine it. We're going to bear the image of Christ. God's promise to Isaiah of coming deliverance was fulfilled in Christ and will yet be fulfilled. As Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 13, the saying is trustworthy. That literally means the word is faithful. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Hold fast to this. Cling to it. He remains faithful. The word is faithful. This is our only hope. Someday, the day will come when our eyes will see the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 8, that the Apostle John spoke of in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 13. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse and the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but he himself. He, his robe is dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great gift. We thank you for the word that saved us, the word that created us and saved us. We thank you for the word that sustains us. And we thank you for the promise that someday we will bear the image of Christ. Please go with us. Make us servants of the word. Conform us to it. Guide us and help us to hope all the more on the great day. In Jesus' name, amen.